you're on the panel on RNZ National, joining me, Ali Jones and Steve McCabe. Um, just an extraordinary response, of course, International Women's Day this afternoon, and we do discuss very shortly uh, housing and later health inequity uh, on that topic. But uh, incredible response. Ali asked, um, which women would you invite to dinner, dead or alive, famous or otherwise? A couple now, and we'll sprinkle them through the show because there's been such a response. Uh, very quickly, Queen Elizabeth II, Cleopatra, Fina Cooper, Dame Fina Cooper, Amelia Earhart and Georgina Bayer, says Maureen Nefangarei. And another one says Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a book on understanding the seven stages of grief and had 2,000-plus totally spellbound at the Auckland Town Hall. CoreLogic's new report on women and property has just been released. Women are trailing behind men in property ownership, especially investment properties. So to put those numbers into perspective, uh, for International Women's Day, we have CoreLogic's report author, Head of Research for Australia, Eliza Owen. Eliza, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Look, overall, women-only dwellings make up 22%, whereas men only 22.5%. 0.5% doesn't sound like a huge gap. Eliza, can you explain this for us? Sure. I mean, I think one important thing, because we do this analysis for Australia and New Zealand, it is actually important to kind of celebrate, I think, the relative parity that we see in New Zealand. So we analysed about 97% of the housing stock across the country and found 22% of it was owned exclusively by women, 22.5% exclusively by men, and a fairly large chunk owned jointly between men and women, about 55.5%. So in Australia... Um, the gap between male and female ownership is about 3.1% of the stock analysed as opposed to just 0.5% of the stock analysed. Okay. Um, that 0.5% represents just over 8,000 properties. I think some of the areas that you know maybe raise a couple of flags is the fact that that disparity does blow out in New Zealand when you look just at investment properties. Of the investment properties we analysed, females owned 21% exclusively compared to 26.5% for men. So that's probably oh. where there's a little bit more work to do in empowering women to, you know, maybe view property as an investment. Or I think as New Zealand has done, maybe move away from property as an investment a, a bit more altogether. Okay, Eliza, let's uh, bring in our panel see what they have to say uh, on this. Ali Jones. Eliza, what I was interested here is when you looked at the investment properties and you saw that large sort of difference, not quite so much in the ownership, but there was still a difference. Has any of this got to do with the fact that uh, women perhaps lose out more after a relationship split or that men are earning more so they are able to invest in a property? Is that, does that play any part in this? I think it would play a part. I mean, this report in particular doesn't do much in the way of causal relationships. So we rely a little bit on the literature surrounding this. So things like the gender pay gap, which means it would take women to accumulate, um, sorry, it would take them longer to accumulate 
a home deposit or, or um, property um, deposit, which factors into higher deposits in investments as well. Um, the fact that they may not have the same level of exposure to the language of finance, investment and, um, you know, the kind of financial literacy where uh, perhaps men are, are conditioned to be more empowered. Um, and certainly a lot of the ways in which um, pay disparity forms from different relationships to the labour market as well. Over time, as women participate in the labour market more, you'd expect them to become more financially empowered and, and access the housing market more easily. All right. Steve? Yeah, I don't really know. I have a whole lot to add to this, to be honest. I don't know. I'm the person who should be commenting here. Okay. All right. So, look, um, so more people deciding to buy together. How does that change things? And does that mask perhaps a more accurate picture of the differentiation between um, who owns what? Uh, I think that the the fact... Sorry, I did just want to go back on the um, piece around women um, not being as successful getting back into the housing market after the end of a marriage because... That has implications for, for this piece as well, right? Mm. One of the notable things about the New Zealand findings is that more than half of properties are jointly between men and women. So it's good in the sense that women at least have partial ownership, but I suppose that does have implications. Um, we know in Australia women are much less likely to get back into home ownership after the end of the marriage. So I, I guess that's... Um, something to think about as well in terms of the implications for financial independence long term. Is that because they're earning less and because they're, uh, you know, the ability for them to earn more in advance through careers, uh, this is a mm. broad generalisation I know, but is, is less or, or they're, they're less able perhaps to, to generate the sorts of incomes that men do at the age that a relationship may break up? Oh, I, I've no doubt that that could play into it. And it comes back to women's relationship to the labour force over time. Mm -hmm. Women are typically overrepresented in part-time work because they are conditioned to be carers, uh, whether that's of children or older parents. And so that's where we see them not being compensated as, as, mm -hmm. as well um, more broadly because of their relationship to the labour force. Yeah, interesting study, Eliza. Kia ora, and thank you for being with us here in New Zealand. Kia ora, thank you. That is the CoreLogic's report, or the Head of Research for Australia, who uh, just a recently released report called Women and Property looked at the breakdown in property ownership, especially investment properties. But you raised something very interesting, Ellie Jones, there, and that is uh, if um, later in life, perhaps if uh, there's a separation there as well, mm. um, there is a real um, aspect. We've talked about this on the panel, actually. There's a real aspect of financial instability later in life amongst uh, some women. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen it amongst, uh, you know, friends and colleagues who have gone yeah. through a breakup late in life. And what they've done is that they've put their careers on hold and they've, they have a lot of them have run the house or they've worked part time, as Eliza said. And so when the relationship ends, it's extremely hard for them to get into position, a position where they can, you know, own their own property or, you know, save the money that they need to buy a property. Interestingly, in the census form, there's, there are questions around, have you done any work that hasn't been paid uh, in the last 
I think it's week and two weeks mm-hmm. and three weeks. And I think they're wanting to see, and it would be interesting to see, who is doing this important work at home, in families, caring for people, but not being paid for it. Yeah. And, you know, every single bloke should be ticking that box saying, yeah, I didn't even get thanks either. Oh, get over yourself. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't defending them. I was just saying they'll be whinging. Oh, they'd be, of course. Well, we're used to that, though, Steve. <laughs> um, now, it doesn't me- do us any good, though, does it? Uh, meanwhile, um, just uh, more, more responses on who you'd like to invite to dinner, what woman, which uh, group of women, past and present, just a few more. I'll sprinkle them through the show. They've been so amazing. Um, Caitlin Moran. Eva Rickard, Catherine Mansfield, Bell Hooks and Grace Slick, says someone. Mm. Uh, another one, Rupert, says, I would invite Kim Hill to dinner. Uh, who else? So what, what other? Kelly Wallace, I'd like to have uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and England, a formidable woman, mother of King Richard the Lionheart, says Sharon. And from ah, Nikki Bazant, love the question about which five women I'd like to invite. So Nikki says Michelle Obama, Gabrielle Chanel, Helen Clark, Taylor Swift, and Anne Boleyn. Is oh, there interesting. A, there's a mix, isn't there? Mm. How, how would Anne Boleyn be able to eat dinner? All right, yes, there's always one. Have you got new writers? I just. Uh, oh no, I I write my own material. Can't yeah, you tell? Steve Steve um, r- brings his jokes and we look over them and we go, okay, that can get through. This can go through. Uh, so so you, have to, like. you have to ask yourself, what do the ones that don't get through look like? Yeah, yeah. that's frightening. <laughs> Seventeen mm. past four, the panel, uh, and the issue of tax and how to make it fairer has been a topic at the moment, especially on the back of Cyclone Gabrielle and suggestions on how to pay for the massive costs. For example, a wealth tax has been suggested. Greens want an excess profits tax. National want an inquiry into bank profits. And a small government commissioned paper and poll showed that a wealth tax is actually widely supported. It's a small poll of 436, but our next guest has written an opinion piece on Newsroom on how we might make tax a little fairer. With us is Louise Delaney, Senior Lecturer in Public and Global Health Law and Ethics at the Department of Public Health at Otago University. Dr Delaney, kia ora. Kia ora. And I'm just Louise, not Dr Delaney. Oh, no. Thank you, Louise. No, thanks for the correction. Now... One Thank you very much for having me, and I really, you know, really welcome the opportunity to talk about tax. I think talking about tax is a really good thing to be able to do. No, we always get a big response to it when we bring it up on the panel, which is actually quite a bit. And one thing uh, about New Zealand that you say our tax system is re- very reliant on is income and consumption, and yet wealth is not currently taxed. That's correct, yes. Now, wealth is definitely, um, as a source of, of uh, possible income for the government, is our missing hole. It's just this great big gap in, in our system. And, and that actually, you know, really um, doesn't comply with what we think is fair and also doesn't th- comply with or doesn't sort of, in a, it's not in accordance with what we normally think of as a great tax principle. That is taxing all sources of possible government revenue equally. So, yes, uh, we, we get most of our revenue, our government revenue, from individual income and, of course, business income uh, and then income uh, consumption tax, which is the 15% that we all pay when we go to the supermarket. Yeah, GST. Can I ask you then, I'd really like to know, Louise, is 
Aotearoa, are we an outlier in this case of not having some form of wealth tax? That's absolutely right. Uh, in a uh, overview of internationally of, organi- of countries that we normally compare ourselves with, and indeed lots that we don't compare ourselves with, um, we uh, are really, really unusual in that we don't tax any form of either capital gains, that, as you know, was um, rejected by um, the last effort to, to think about that. Uh, we don't tax property. We don't tax inheritances when a person dies. And um, We used to have an inheritance tax, in fact. That was abolished um, a couple of decades ago. We don't tax um, gifts, that is trans- you know, large transfers from a parent to a child during, during their lifetime. Uh, and we don't tax um, wealth in general, just how much money you've got in the bank or how many assets you've got. So we don't tax any of those things now. And it wasn't always that way, and it certainly isn't that way in other countries now. Interesting, isn't it, Steve? I mean, it's happened again. Once again, I, I, I get the list of topics for the panel. I find we're doing a tax topic that I've been banging a drum about on the panel for years. We've been tr- I've been trying to convince people that this is the way we need to go, that, that, that taxing earned income invariably hurts the lower waged more. And, and fuel tax is just like, like, it's like any other consumption tax, like you say, is, is something that will disproportionately affect... Um, the less well-off. People who own their own businesses can can claim deductions, um, they can claim GST back on a lot of their purchases, whereas people who are not wealthy enough to be able to set up their own businesses, who have to work for a living, just simply work and earn a wage, don't get any of those breaks. We are constantly taxing earned income and we are gifting the benefits of that taxation to the people who simply sit on unearned income. It's no, wrong. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. I think that there's got to be a degree of reasonableness here and what worries me about a wealth tax is that you are potentially taxing people twice. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be. In fact, I think there should be a... Um, uh, oh, what was the gains tax you mentioned? It's just gone out of my head. Capital gains. Thank you, capital gains. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, that was a huge lost opportunity from Labour. They should have really put that in place, especially with their, uh, you know, those who, who support the Labour Party. But there should be a capital gains tax, absolutely. But a wealth tax? I mean, if you are taxing someone's earnings, haven't they already paid tax on those earnings and aren't they paying twice? And what level is a fair level? I mean, I've been looking at some of the stuff overseas. There are wealth taxes or similar taxes on uh, earnings and assets over, say, $10 million. You know, for me, it's the thin edge of the wedge. It's, it's, uh, it concerns me, but I think we've got to put a, a capital gains tax in place as okay, soon as so possible. Okay, so capital gains but no to wealth tax, mm. uh, says Ellie Louise. Um, I think that really what's important is, is, and what's fundamental to all these questions, is that, you know, what is tax for? Uh, and um, again with that is um, what kind of society do we want? <clears throat> tax itself is just a means to an end. It's not important in itself. The end is what's important. So what kind of society do we want? And I would suggest, I hope, <laughs> that most New Zealanders think that what we want is a society where people are fair, reasonably equal. Uh, you mentioned the word reasonableness. Reasonable equal in terms of poverty levels and wealth levels, reasonably um, um, level in terms of you know access of both opportunities but also of outcomes to some extent. So I think that we want, I think we want a society where there is a lack of poverty, 
where we don't have that, we don't consider we we should be a country where there are you know real poverty, and we do not want the kind of inequalities, really drastic inequalities, that have developed in New Zealand since the 1990s uh, or a bit before. And um, although they, those inequalities, the levels have stabilised to some extent over the last few years, they have persisted and not changed. So we want a society where everybody has the same kind of access to a decent life and um, are not poor and, can okay. do, and and don't have those terrible intergenerational inequalities which have developed. All right, hence, I don't uh, disagree uh, with that. No, I agree, okay. yeah. yeah. All right, and so... Uh, reform let's... is one strategy and an important one, not necessarily the only one, to attain that. Steve. Well, I mean, two, two points to make, first of all. Number one, I think that was a slightly reductive and, and um, minimalist description of what the benefit of tax is. I would, I would place it in terms of positives, is where everyone does have access to health care, does have access to education, does have access to non-damp housing. And then also, Ali, um, I'm actually going to mostly agree with you, believe it or not. You are mostly right that people shouldn't be double taxed, and which is why I've always been saying we abolish income tax, we abolish sales tax. And the taxing that we do... Uh, assess is going to be on the wealth and on the unearned income. Earned income we do not tax and that way we get rid of the double taxation because that would be wrong. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. Hey, so uh, Louise, let's look at some, because the idea is this has become quite the topic now, hasn't it? It always has been, but especially on, we have some massive uh, costs to um, stump up money, not least infrastructure and how we pay, you know, for intergenerational infrastructure, for example. So let's look at some concrete stuff here. Okay, what about this? Our top tax rate now is 39% on income over 180K. In Aussie, you're paying 45%, uh, so not 39, but 45, that's Australia. Um, What do you propose uh, well, we propose something a little bit similar um, and looking at the Australian example, uh, although a little bit different. So our proposal is, or my proposal, but this is consistent with those of Tax Justice Aotearoa New Zealand, of which I'm a member, uh, we propose um, a um, higher income tax rate for those with high incomes and um, a bit higher than Australia here, 50% tax rate on 50%. income over 150000 And that's, of course... Um, yeah, so and that would replace the 39% over 180. So that is 40, instead of the Australian 45%, uh, we propose um, a 50% tax rate. Wow. Oh. Ellie? Well, I just think we're hit in so many different ways with tax. I think the whole system needs to be rejigged. I'm really concerned about Thank you on, on fresh foods and things like that. And I think, you know, I don't want to smash a walnut with a sledgehammer here. I think the whole system needs to be reviewed. Um, and 50% may well work if you are hitting people who are earning huge amounts of money. Uh, but we are also making the doctors more um, accessible. We're taking GST off fresh food. It's got to be completely reviewed the system. But here's a, here's a really concrete, simple, um, uh, a, a low compliance. Uh, Louise is proposing a 50% top tax rate on income over 150k. 2101, do you support it? Another one you said, Louise, an annual levy on net wealth over 2 million, like say 2%. Uh, yes, 
that is yep the second of um, uh, the the proposals put out in, in, in uh, this paper and, and of course I emphasize net wealth um, so if you happen to own um, a house which is a million dollars which isn't you know these days totally um, you know, impossible um, but you are mortgaged in some way or have a loan um, of you know I don't know eighty thousand uh, then the, your actual net wealth is only twenty thousand, mm. and many New Zealanders are in that position. They they look as if they may they may look as if they've got a, a very expensive asset, but in fact taking um, mortgages and so on into account. In fact, so we are talking about um, net wealth, uh, not got it. Yeah. assets. So a two percent annual tax on net wealth over two million. <laughs> Um, which would generate, you know, just for example, say if you happen to have um, $3 million net worth yes. wealth, and not many New Zealanders are in that position, uh, uh, that would generate 20000 It's um, so interesting, that, Louise. Yeah. not a very extraordinary idea. Um, ideas about wealth taxes um, around that order, I mean, obviously you can have different figures um, and different rates, um, but are actually yeah. implemented in at least some countries that we compare ourselves Great with. to have you on, Louise. Kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. It was so fascinating. That's Louise Delaney, the Senior Lecturer in Public and Global Health Law and Ethics at Otago University. Just a word on this. I don't want to just round the panel on this. Consultants. We have been talking about consultants, have we not? Big topic. The core public service for the 2021-2022 year spent $1.2 billion on contractors and consultants consultants, a significant jump of 32% on the previous year. And you've got the likes of the RNZ, TVNZ merger, $16 million spent on that. Um, So um, that's been in the news also, has it not? So how do we go back to doing things in-house or is it more efficient to contract out? I just want to get uh, our panellists' views on uh, contractors and consultants, Ali Jones, where do you sit on this? I don't think it's as black and white as it's made out to be. You know, everyone likes the big figures. They like to be appalled by this, and I am too. I mean, I know by some of the building projects here in in Christchurch after the quakes that a massive amount of money has gone into uh, pre-construction periods. We're talking multiple millions before anything even happens in the ground. But I think you've got to look at the situation. It is not effective for people to do everything in-house. There is expertise required that you cannot uh, keep, uh, you know, with a full workload within an organisation all the time. So I think it's horses for courses, but I do agree that there is too much being spent. I mean, those figures are eye-watering, aren't they? Steve? No, I'm with you, Ollie. I mean, it's a false dichotomy, isn't it? So, you know, consultants are bad. Well, all of them. And, mm. and, and like you say, the, you know, the, the, the core competencies you hire people in, in-house for, for the specialist stuff, you hire the specialists. If, if you can, what's the alternative? You, you, you keep some fellow sitting in the corner and get, pull him out of his box once a year when he's finally needed. <laughs> that would be a massive inefficiency, and we get slated for that as well. I mean, yes, possibly these guys charge more than they're really worth. Who knows? But if that's, if that's what the market demands, we've always been told that the market's always right, and so we just have to suck <laughs> it up, I guess. Mm. Ellie? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I just think it's a case-by-case basis. Um, uh, uh, can I ask you one thing very quickly before you go to the news? I know you're right on mm-hmm. the half, Wallace. That last bit about the tax and, you know, taxing people, if you've got a house and you've got a big mortgage and then that can come off what your net worth is, don't you think that penalises people who work hard to pay off their mortgages? I'm just I'm thinking about that while I'm talking about consultants mm. as well. But uh, that's where I'm really confused. Do we want to encourage people to pay debt down and be mortgage-free? Because then... 
they could, in fact, if there is a wealth tax put in place, end up paying more in tax. So what do we do? Well, that's a very good question. I guess uh, one of the things Louise is saying is uh, where are we at? And listeners might have uh, a view on this. Mm. Where, How do we get to the point where we are one of the few nations in the OECD and indeed the world that doesn't have some form of tax on wealth, but we do have tax on services and fruit Food. and mm. veggies mm. and income, but not on wealth. I guess that's the key point, isn't it? Anyway, a wonderful to have your company and so many wonderful responses on Ali Jones, as I've been thinking, which is, to recap, which woman would you invite around to dinner uh, from the past or from the present, famous or not famous? Text me, 2101.